I'm Steve Van Poor, and this is the FCCMA podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. I'm your host. In each episode, we will interview a municipal or county leader who is in a position to share interesting and useful insights into local government. Today, we have with us more than three decades of local government experience with Jill Silverboard. Jill currently serves as the Deputy County Administrator and Chief of Staff for Pinellas County. This is remarkable. She oversees the Office of Asset Management, which probably could be a full-time job in and of itself, parks, conservation, public works, solid waste, sustainability and resiliency. Uh, That's not a big deal in in an isthmus. Uh, And utilities. Uh, Jill, thank you. (laughs) I presume you have a very busy schedule. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Steve. I'm very happy to be uh, able to participate today and looking forward to our conversation. You've been in uh, positions of leadership, not just within Pinellas County, but also within the Florida City County Management Association, uh, served on the executive board, et cetera. And as past president, you've taken on a special challenge. And one of the main topics we want to discuss today is women in government, but not just women in government, but women in executive level positions in government. What got you first interested in, in taking on that challenge? So early conversations started probably 12 years ago with a number of female managers that I have known at the association level for many years and our ability to just have some some conversations uh, and talk about our challenges and our experiences. And that became um, a more formal uh, scheduled conversation each year when we'd get together at the conference. And the timing was such that my service on the executive committee allowed me to begin to delve into diversity and inclusion. And that, of course, is much broader than just women, but uh, beginning to have conversations about the challenges that, that women had. ICMA was undertaking a, a task force on women in the profession back in 2013, 2014. So the timing was really a great opportunity. And we've become a little more formal as we've approached the conversation for FCCMA and and the approach that we've used to try to reach out to women serving in local government and talk about their own paths and why they may or may not be interested in the chief in the higher levels right well you you guys went one step beyond which was impressive you went you know a lot of times a lot of associations will form a task force and they'll meet and they'll discuss and they'll produce a report but you guys went one step further you conducted a series of focus groups tell us a little bit about that journey and what who was in the focus groups and what you learned from them? So in 2020, uh, pre-pandemic, we were actually able to conduct a series of focus groups. Our desire was to have these uh, around the state of Florida so that we were reaching women in different geographical locations. We built it around the FCCMA district uh, areas in doing that. And we ended up with uh, participants from around the state. We later added a virtual focus group so that those that weren't able to participate in person could do so. And we actually ended up with uh, a pretty good demographic breakdown. Uh, we, we had baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, and Gen Z participants. We uh, asked women about their highest level of educational degree. We obviously were wanted to talk a lot about what their local government positions had been in the past and where they were mm-hmm. at the current time, including whether they were CAOs. Uh, years and years of service in local government. 
And so we had um, out of about a, the, across the focus groups, um, which we conducted, there were uh, just shy of a hundred participants. So wow. it's a pretty good, pretty good opportunity out of nine focus groups. We had over about averaged around 10. So there were small group conversations and uh, we actually had 30 out of those. So almost a third of the participants aspired to be, or were already a chief administrative officer or a chartered officer of some type. So uh, that was a very good participation level. We thought from that perspective in the focus groups, and then we had 52 of the participants. So over half aspired to be either or already were an assistant or deputy manager or department head. So we considered department head, deputy assistant, or chief officer to be sort of that women in leadership level. Yeah. So what did you, what did you learn? I I see this from two perspectives. There could be the, the proverbial glass ceiling that the, the industry itself, and again, whether it's technology, science, uh, education, or now in our case, local government could be the impediment. Sometimes the impediment are the folks themselves, whether you're trying to uh, uh, ask women to, to move up and, and aspire to their full potential or minorities. Uh, what did you guys find about what are the impediments? Well, one of the first things that we found was an overarching takeaway that I think we all knew innately uh, from our group going back, as I said, you know, 10, 12 years. And that is, is that everyone's path is different. So there is no guaranteed formula, regardless of (laughs) where you are or which seat you aspire to. There is no uh, guaranteed formulaic approach that if you get this degree or you get this education or you serve as this department head, that you are going to someday be able to be a CAO. So we found that that was true uh, and held true uh, throughout the focus groups. But some of the other takeaways uh, were a little more surprising to us. For example, we found out, as I uh, mentioned, that more of the participants are interested in being a deputy or an assistant CAO rather than being a CAO. Now that's, that's comports with my history and my experience, um, having served in both of those levels of positions for many years, I prefer being a deputy or an assistant. And there's some, I found some commonality with the focus group participants in that. What do you think is behind that? Well, I think so for, for me, there was, um, something else that we learned through the focus groups, which is that the participants expressed a lot of reservations about work-life balance. They expressed uh, concerns for navigating the political dynamics that come in local government and having and having what they thought was the right experience for the position. Now, the first two played so is in that a desire? I, I want to be number two because I get a lot done, but I can still maintain work-life balance and I don't have to deal as much with the frontline politics. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. And so in my case, I was married to a city manager. So one of us needed to be in a more secure position. So I actually went from being a city manager uh, to back to being a deputy city manager for many years for in for, for, for those same reasons. So a lot of commonality there in our focus groups as well. Um, we also learned something that I that didn't that hadn't really occurred to us in our informal processes so much is that um, more women are promoted or selected through non-competitive processes than through competitive processes, at least here in Florida and cities and counties. And that was surprising to us. 
It's almost the opposite, you would think. You would think, you know, all the good old boy network is promoting men from within, but it it didn't seem to be, that wasn't the impediment there. But is there a glass ceiling for women in in local government, or is it more self-imposed? I think, again, from my own experience and my many conversations and my participating in these focus groups is, I would say it's more self-imposed. Oh, very um, interesting. It, it, I don't think it means that there isn't a glass ceiling. I think there is. And it, it rests largely, uh, we believe, with the elected officials more than it does with uh, the professional local government managers. So, uh, you know, we, we were, I wouldn't say there is no glass ceiling, but I would also say that many women that we've talked to self-impose uh, as often as not because they're either not confident that they have all of the same experiences and the, in, in the workplace that they need to go for the assistant or the C, more importantly, the CAO, as, mm-hmm. as though they have to know every area of municipal or county operations. And men don't do that. We know that from research, that men do not have that same reservation. Well, you know, I worked in public works. I should be able to do uh, health and human services. You know, they don't, they don't compare the two to the same level that women do in terms of their qualifications for a CAO seat. Oh, yeah. You know, research is abundant. You know, you ask a man, uh, how does a cell phone work? They'll explain it to you whether they have a clue or not. And women are more likely to say, you know, I really don't know. (laughs) Uh, And it's probably the same way in government as well. Men are more willing to, uh, as they say, get over their skis uh, than than women are. Uh, I guess you found that a little bit. Women feel like they're not as qualified because they never actually ran a utility. We, we absolutely found that out. And I think that that's a great opportunity for the future in terms of conversations with the, you know, younger local government uh, folks, whether they're male or female, but particularly female, that I think there's a story to be told there and some mentoring that can be done to, to help them uh, remove at least that as a barrier. But the other things I mentioned um, are also, you know, sort of uh, self-imposed as well as not self-imposed limitations. Um, And I'm, you know, the recruitment processes. Another thing we learned, Steve, is that if there are multiple women in the applicant pool, the odds of a woman being hired are are higher. And so if we can get more women to apply and participate, then the likelihood of a woman being selected to the CAO seat goes up. And that's particularly true if there are more than one woman in the finalist pool. If there's a single woman- Is that becoming, because if there's five applicants, one's a woman, the the debate among the commission or the appointing authority becomes women or not women? Yes. And if you have two in there, you change that whole dynamic and give them a better shot. That's what we've we've found, yes. So that was a surprise. So do you, I want to ask you to speculate for a second, because what we're seeing uh, of late and a, and a pretty good trend, I think, is that you're seeing more uh, women being elected to local government positions, uh, city councils, county commissions, et cetera, uh, over the last 20 years. Do you think that will begin to change a public perception and the perception of those commissions? I hope so. That has not been my experience in the past. Uh, When I've interviewed with city councils or county commissions with with female majorities, I didn't get those jobs. Um, But we have talked about that as possibly being an avenue for more women to be supported and considered for CAO positions 
One of the things we learned from the focus groups, though, is that women are not as supportive of women as men are supportive of women for that advancement. Oh, and, really? Yeah. So we've actually have a takeaway from all this work because um, we're going to continue working on this. And it, and it actually relates to uh, that exact topic, which is elected officials and the makeup of the elected body, the city councils, the county commissioners, and how that may or may not factor into their consideration of women uh, in those leadership seats. We, th we think there's more to be learned there. Uh, and so, yeah, I am speculating somewhat, but we heard that from focus group participants, that women just simply are not supportive of other women in the same way um, that men are supportive of women. Is it because they're, do you think it's because they're overcompensating, not wanting to appear to be, uh, pardon, pardon the expression, a feminist? Uh, or is it like, you know, when you're a parent and you're coaching your own kid, you're less likely to let that kid start because you don't want to be seen as being prejudicial? Are you getting a little bit of that from the elected? I, I'm sure that's an element of it. I also think that it is, you know, whether it's conscious or unconscious, I think there are just a lot of those types of factors in play, depending on the demographic of the elected officials. Okay. I, you know, sometimes there are, uh, as as you say, we're, we're getting more and more women serving on those elected bodies, and we think that's great. And I think that will hopefully be a game changer to support more women in the appointed positions. And is the goal of expanding um, women into the executive level workforce in government is, do you see a governments will do better because they have a broader array of applicants uh, and, or is it also good for the women? Tell me a little bit of both of those. What, what is some, some of the end goal here, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, we, we believe that gender parity is, is important, but we also think that women leaders bring different strengths uh, than male leaders bring. And we think that um, this isn't meant to be an exclusion of male leadership either. Uh, you know, we want everyone to succeed as it relates to FCCMA and our professional association. But we do also know that promoting female talent is a really smart business decision. Mm -hmm. uh, women are better at building bridges and uh, address, they address conflict in a completely different way that depending on the community and depending on the city or the county, uh, they can be very successful successful in the leadership position. They also uh, tend to be uh, less likely to violate gender norms. Um, they are tend to be viewed as a more collaborative uh, leader uh, than men. And these are all generalities. I mean, these are mm -hmm. over, you know, I'm sort of overgeneralizing. But uh, and one of the things that we also have as a future takeaway that relates to this question is, tenure. Do women CAOs end up serving longer than men CAOs? We believe, uh, and we're speculating, but we believe they do. That um, doesn't mean that that they don't also become, you know, um, victims or, uh, it's not the right word, victims, not the right word, but but become um, the, the subject of political conditions that may change over time. But, you know, the... Um, the women tend to have uh, those types of leadership qualities that allow them, we think, to have a longer service. Uh, I remember and, reading about the Navy when they were in instituting more women in the Navy, and their first thing was, well, they're pregnant and leave, and, and a commanding officer said, well, yeah, but I know 
that someone, I got a nine month head start to fill that position. But once they're in and once they're there, we tend to have lower turnover. They tend to be more satisfied with being in an exo position that's permanent as opposed to always conning, wanting to climb the ladder. So I guess what you're saying is it's, it's very similar there. Yeah, it also, it also relates to something that we learned from the focus groups uh, that has caused our speculation, and that is that if most women are promoted or advanced to a CAO seat from a non-competitive process, they're already invested in that organization and that mm-hmm. community. And so there is a lot less risk for the elected officials to choose someone who is a known quantity that they know is living in that community or is already invested in being in that organization. You know, I'm a big believer in hiring from within you. The person knows the city, knows the personalities, knows the council, has the uh, trusted experience in bringing in somebody from Sioux City, Iowa to say, oh, we we, we brought this person in. They've got this great resume. You just don't really know how they're going to fit into the local culture. Exactly. And so that's a that's something we want to talk to the electeds about in the future as well is is that, you know, how does that factor into your consideration? We do know that Florida applicants tend to do better in Florida than non uh, Florida applicants for CAO positions. That's that's just men and women. Um, so, you know, there's we think we're special here in Florida and uh, oh, we're special. All right. Yeah, we, in, in, in good ways and bad ways, I'm sure. But um, yeah, we, th- we think that that's part of the we think that's part of this entire sort of takeaway is that there's a real opportunity to look at uh, maybe depending on size of community or, as you mentioned earlier, the composition of male female representation on elected bodies that mm-hmm. we may be able to better promote women. Excellent. Excellent. You know, you said something earlier about there's conflict in local government. I didn't know that. I didn't know there was conflict. I, I thought everything just ran smoothly all the time. <laughs> well, I'm fortunate that it that to be in a place that's uh, just got an awesome uh, board of county commissioners and very like-minded and, you know, very much on the same page. And, and unfortunately, that's not always true for every city or county here. In and, and Pinellas County, I, I see as a bellwether of diversity, uh, very similar to Florida at large. You know, you've got a, a large urban area. You've got many different types of suburbs. You have a coastal community. You know, it's it, Pinellas County is is it's like it's a hodgepodge of everything, right? All all wrapped up into one. Yeah, it is. That's one of the reasons I love it. Let me, let me switch gears with you a little bit um, because I want to make this a little timely as well as topical. The uh, how are you guys dealing with uh, managing uh, through the pandemic? Uh, and I'm talking about Pinellas County in general. You have special challenges both with workforce as well as unique uh, things happening uh, in, within, the, within the county for serving constituents as well. Tell me a little bit about what your guys' approach has been and, and how you've helped, been able to deal with some of that. So internally, as it related to continuation of service, I, I think it's interesting that people need to note that we didn't stop doing anything. We did we did things differently, but we didn't stop doing anything. I mean, we continued to deliver water. Yeah, you don't have that luxury in local government. Right, exactly. We continued to deliver water and treat sewage and uh, take 911 calls and, and uh, you know, issue building permits and, and whatever, whatever those services were to one another internally or to the community. So one of the first things we did was figure out how many people 
could work remotely, who, who could do their work remotely versus those that could not. We use technolo technology as a, as a part of the solution set for those who could work remotely. Uh, and while we did close many uh, buildings and facilities to public interaction, we delivered services differently uh, from uh, some of the examples I just gave. But then we also had a category of employees who couldn't do their work remotely, right? So you can't cut grass remotely or you can't respond to fire rescue calls remotely. Um, our 911 system is not uh, a platform that someone can take calls from their home. We just simply weren't set up for those things. So there were were uh, many, many groups that had to uh, continue to report and perform their work every day. And they did so um, very dependably, as I've always found that to be true in local government. We did what we could. So uh, some examples for field deployment, for we used every possible vehicle we could find so that we could put few, you know, one person per vehicle. Um, enhanced sanitation practices throughout not just vehicles, but facilities. Um, our traffic uh, communication center, for example, you know, just spreading people out. We rotated shifts. Uh, we split people up. We used a number of those kinds of tools so that we were uh, hopefully able to keep our employees as safe as possible. You know, we had some risk uh, positions, for example, out at the jail where we support uh, the jail facilities, and we were really concerned about uh, COVID um, cases in the jail and what that would look like. So we we had to do a number of uh, a number of things to um, ensure our employees were being as safe and kept as safe as possible. So personal protective equipment, um, you know, we had employees supporting testing centers. We have employees, you know, doing a lot of um, things around the clock that had to really be uh, important to delivering those services and, and keeping those systems up and running. Well, you know, it's it's funny because I hear the legislature talking, the state legislature, well, we may not meet, we won't meet to the end of the year and nothing against them. They make laws. But state government, a lot of parts of it were able to shut down temporarily without disruption. But if you shut down uh, the utilities, for example, and say we can't work through the pandemic, a lot of people are going to be mad. <laughs> <laughs> they won't have electricity or water. They won't be able to flush their toilets. Trash removal, you miss two weeks and you have a, you have a local crisis. Uh, so it, I, I, it, it reminded me of, you know, you're, re, you're repairing the plane while it's still flying. It sounds like you guys implemented a whole bunch of new technologies, got people trained up, <clears throat> and really didn't miss a whole lot, did you? That's right. Um, one of the biggest challenges were the hybrid locations, and I'll just use an example. So in our parks... That? Our parks, uh, we have a wonderful park system here in Pinellas County, and so parks were open. I mean, it was one of the few things that people could do and were encouraged to do was get out and enjoy the fresh air, uh, just socially distance while doing it. So we opened our, our parks, kept them open, and but we had to close playgrounds, for example. Um, we debated what to do with the dog parks. Was that too close? Um, you know, was that going to put people in a situation where they couldn't be socially distanced and safe? Um, so we closed playgrounds, and we, even though we could have, we could have cleaned them. We couldn't clean them frequently enough to guarantee user safety, and so that was a challenge uh, that we we met and we had everything open that could possibly be open for everyone to enjoy. But, you know, we weren't able to do our, our, our campsites at um, Fort DeSoto Park. Uh, we had to shut that down temporarily. 
uh, kayak rentals, you know, things that had high touch, yeah. you know, frequent kinds of, of use things. Uh, the campground wasn't so much the campers themselves. It was the support facilities, being able to sanitize and manage uh, restrooms and pavilions and those kinds of things. So, yeah, it's not to think when you think of camping, like, hey, I'm sitting out by myself, but yep. it's, it's the support aspects of it. And by the way, I got, I have to imagine running government, you could shut down the schools, you could shut down the roads, you can even shut down the sewers and the electricity, but you shut down that dog park. Now you got some people really mad at you. <laughs> That's exactly. That's right. So we left those open, by the way. <laughs> what was interesting, well, though, good, is... Good you know, move. Good, well, good political and, move there. And we had a, we have a great, it's one of the great things about FCCMA is that, you know, we're all checking with each other. I mean, we were, we were checking out with our, you know, our, our peers and, and um, other counties and cities and, hey, what are you doing? Here in Pinellas, we have 24 cities. So we... We worked really hard, and particularly my boss, the county administrator, worked really hard with all our city managers to try to have some consistency for our community. Um, so if, you know, if we were going to close our dog parks, then maybe the city of Clearwater or city of St. Petersburg uh, probably should close theirs, right? So we we really worked hard for a lot of consistency there with our city partners. And uh, and again, just wealth of wealth of information from other counties. That was especially true when we had to close the beaches uh, in the middle of spring break. That was a, a really unpopular move, of course, but um, we thought it was necessary. And there were other counties uh, that helped us figure out how they were going to do it and how we were going to do it. Well, that's one of the important parts. I, one of the things I love of the 400 plus municipalities, 67 counties, <clears throat> the way we cross collaborate, talk to each other, meet on a constant basis to understand, you know, that free marketplace of ideas, good ideas percolate to the top in this regard. And you guys do a very good job of that. Thank you. The, uh, so let's, let's close up with a kind of a, a positive thing. Tell me something cool about Pinellas County. Well, I think people think of us simply for our beaches and we are so much more than beaches. And I, I think we're unique in our ability to offer, Tampa Bay to the east and the Gulf of Mexico to the west. But one of the things that people don't actually realize is the uh, hundreds of thousands of acres of preserves that we have here in Pinellas County. And we're so tiny and we're so populous, you know, we're close to a million people. Um, we have some of the uh, largest uh, preserve properties in the state uh, outside of state-owned properties. Um, so that's something that I think is really amazing. And it's all traversed uh, Pinellas County by an amazing trail system. So we have the Pinellas mm -hmm. County Trail that's uh, traveled you know, all the way to, from the south end of the county to to Pasco County to our north. Uh, we're working on some, some loops to those systems and tying them into other trail systems. So I think it's an outdoor paradise if you enjoy uh, nature and uh, Florida um, preserves, this is a wonderful county to come and visit. And you have a fantastic, uh, very cool downtown, very vibrant downtown in St. Petersburg. It really yeah. is just a cool place to hang out. And as an avid cyclist, I personally thank you guys <laughs> for putting, my son goes to school there. So it's fun to go visit him and get on the bike and just BS for. Oh, absolutely. Well, you can ride all the way from Tampa to St. Pete or Tampa to Clearwater. Um, so you can go Bay to Beach. I, and I've done that. I've, I've gone across oh, the Courtney Campbell where it has that bike path there. That's it's, correct. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's fantastic. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes you get the wind at your face and it makes it a uphill ride the whole <laughs> way. <laughs> well, Jill, uh, thank you so much. We're here today with Jill Silverboard, <clears throat> uh, number two at Pinellas County. And uh, 
fantastic leadership. And thanks for that insight on uh, promoting women. And uh, we will be uh, back with another uh, exciting episode of the FCCMA podcast. I'm your host, Steve Vancor, and this has been a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. Thanks for being with us.